wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Please follow Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please rate and review Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share this and other episodes with others. We're dealing with a sensitive topic today. It's a difficult but important conversation. Robert Utaro is a rape crisis counsellor and community educator who has a lifelong commitment to activism and advocacy for survivors of sexual violence. He facilitates workshops that unpack the realities of sexual violence and offers strategies for support and prevention with a focus on healing. He's the author of the book, To the Survivors. He's my guest today on Bleeding Daylight. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Rodney, thank you so much for having me. I just want to say to all your listeners out there that this can be a really difficult conversation to have. You know, I may say some things that are tough to listen to. So just to take care of yourself, to, you know, during this interview and after, please do whatever it is that helps you and brings you peace and joy in this world because this can be tough. Sexual violence isn't an easy issue to deal with, and yet we see its consequences all around us. What was it that drew you towards supporting and helping victims to become survivors? It started when I was a 22-year-old in college. I was a senior in college taking a class on women in crime. We talked about different things in, 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 the, in the class, you know, female inmates and female gang members, but there was a big section on the class that dealt with sexual violence. We were reading a book about rape and it was hitting me very deeply. I really felt like God was actually working in me throughout this time. Then three women from a local rape crisis center came to our class and spoke. These women were like angels to me. I found them to be incredibly strong, but yet so gentle. And I was in awe of what they were doing. They ended up showing us a six-minute reenactment of a perpetrator, of an interview. Really, the disgust just came at me first. I thought I was going to you know, throw up in my chair. And then that disgust really turned into like a, a deep rage. It was something I'll never forget. And God said to me, will you help? I was so nervous, so insecure. Every negative thought or emotion came at me, but I ultimately said yes. And there were these women, there were opportunities to volunteer. And at the end of class, as, as nervous and as scared as I was, I asked them, could I volunteer with you? They took down my information. I ended up being selected over other people for an internship. And my life has never been the same since. When you're surrounded by this much pain and the deplorable acts that others have committed, how do you prevent yourself from seeing the world as, as darker than it actually is? Mm, it's an interesting question. I do see darkness in the world, but I think my faith and I have hope and I do believe in love. I believe in God. And I, I believe that as, as dark as this world can be and as, as violent and atrocious as this world can be, there's ultimately more good than bad in it. And I, I think so my faith in God me personally, is what keeps me positive and keep going in this. So from those early days with that internship, where did things lead from there? What were the things that, that started to surprise you about this whole topic of sexual violence as you started to learn more and more? 
Well, it was interesting to do it. We we did a 40 hour training. So my boss at the time, let me take time off of work to go to this training. And it was, it was just life changing. I, I remember specifically the days talking about childhood sexual abuse were incredibly tough. And then after we would do like meditation work, and that was really helpful in kind of getting out of the misery and the depression and the sadness of what we just talked about. But I remember specifically when I was an intern in the office, a woman that I worked with was speaking to a woman on the phone and she asked the woman, do you mind if a male crisis counselor sits on this phone call with us? And that really hit me. It became so real because I wasn't even looking at this woman. I wasn't speaking to this woman. I was just on the phone. But because it is so personal, because it is so painful to so many people, she asked that question. And that was something that hit me very deeply. As a male, is it sometimes difficult to gain the trust of those that you're talking to, to those that you're trying to help? Sometimes. And then sometimes it isn't. I think sometimes the people that you never expect would open up to you about this kind of thing do. And that's their choice if they choose to. There can be time, and that's fine. If people don't feel comfortable speaking to me, they don't have to, and that's more than okay. My hope for people is that they talk to someone. If they are hurting in any way, that they will speak to someone that they trust, that they that will treat them well. So there have been people of all different backgrounds who feel comfortable speaking with me, and of course, plenty of people that don't as well. How big is this problem? Because we do hear of cases of sexual violence again and again, but how big is this problem really? I don't often speak about statistics because it's the least reported violent crime. So no matter what stats you have, ultimately don't show the true picture of what's going on in the earth. I believe it is incredibly prevalent. I just recently spoke at a high school to two classes and I I have them all stand up and I asked them, I said, does anyone know of someone, please remain standing if you know of someone who's been sexually assaulted and every single student was still standing. I found that to be quite disturbing that all of those kids knew of someone who has been sexually assaulted. And I asked if they remain standing, if they knew of someone who has been raped. A few sat down, but still the vast majority of people knew someone. So there are many people all over the world, women, men, children, who are sexually violated. And oftentimes it is hidden in secrecy and and we don't know, but people are living their lives, dealing with the daily stresses of life. But many people are also dealing with the pain of sexual trauma, other traumas as as well, of course. But yes, I believe this is incredibly prevalent, but I could not say, give an exact number on it. I'd like to ask about some of the things that we hear whenever there's a case that we see, for instance, in the media that talks about this sort of sexual violence. There are certain things that people will say, such as, well, this happened so many years ago. Why are they just talking about it now? Can you take us through why sometimes victims will hold back for so many years before they open up about what they've endured? It's incredibly difficult to talk about. There are many people who are violated, as you said, atrociously, who experience horrific acts and they don't want to talk about it. They don't feel comfortable talking about it. And that's okay. Most people don't report to the police. But over time, sometimes people do feel more comfortable talking about it. And sometimes when you you bring up the media, sometimes if a story comes up in the media and someone else was also assaulted by that perpetrator, they may feel more comfortable opening up as well because now someone also came out and disclosed about that perpetrator. It is incredibly difficult to talk about. And also it's tough to talk about 
not just because of how painful the crime is, but also because of sometimes how we treat people. So if we are not listening to them, if we don't believe them, if we're blaming them for some of their actions, these are some of the reasons why people ultimately stay silent to begin with. And again, there's often this narrative in the media when when there are high-profile cases, when people come forward, and especially when women come forward and say, yes, that was my experience too, that there's this chorus of people saying, oh, they're just doing it for the money. Can you imagine a time where someone would put themselves through all of that for the sake of supposedly making money? No. In fact, many people do not come forward for money or for criminal prosecution. Many people, even if they do come forward, they sometimes want validation, have their voice be heard and to be recognized as someone who has been victimized by this person or by these people. Because I imagine it's an incredibly traumatic experience to come forward. And it must be re-traumatizing for many of these people when they're accused of, of just coming forward and making things up or to do things for money or to do things for notoriety. How damaging can that be? Incredibly damaging. And there are people who do lie. It's it's not the majority of people, but there are human beings who do lie. But those who are coming forward, again, with a media story, and I can't speak for them because I'm not them, but I believe they come forward again. Now they might even feel slightly more confident, empowered. Maybe they might believe that they might be believed now because someone else has already said this. And maybe they feel after all these years, they feel more confident, or maybe they also feel that, wow, two other people have said this, five other people have said this, now I'm number six. And more people might actually start to believe that, wait, this person really could have committed these crimes or did commit these crimes. So I think there's many different reasons. So we hear about these different incidents in the media, as I say, but more prevalent than that, of course, is just everyday assault that happens. Give me a picture of that. Is it generally someone known to the victim? Is it someone who's a complete stranger? What are we on the lookout for here? Yes, you're right. We hear about stories in the media, but the media stories don't speak to the reality of what's going on all around us. So people, at least in my experience, people will talk about, you know, drinking and all these parties at colleges and but there are so many people who are assaulted, abused, raped, abused for years where alcohol or drugs have absolutely nothing to do with it. So the vast majority of people sexually abused do know their perpetrators. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't stranger assaults because there are. But the vast majority of people do know that their perpetrator it's, has nothing to do with alcohol or drugs so many times. So you have people assaulted by family members, friends, significant others, spouses, leaders in the community. It's, it, it's on and on. We know that people can have a very warped sense of what is normal depending on upbringing and to expect that certain things are just how life goes. Are there many times when there are, there are those people who have been abused who for some time, haven't even realized that this is something that is terribly wrong and should never have happened to them? I believe plenty of people feel that. I think there's also plenty of people who sadly are abuses children in, in different ways, and they sometimes do think that's normal because that might be all they know. That might be normal in their family. And hopefully they come to a realization, I believe they come to a realization in their life where they realize, no, this isn't normal, this isn't healthy, this isn't right. And it's actually incredibly traumatic. 
And what happens when someone comes to that realisation and comes to someone like you and starts to share what they've been through? How do you begin the healing journey with them? One of the best things I believe I can do and other people can do is to really be present and listen to people. And so when people do come to me and they talk to me, I don't just start telling them all the things they should or shouldn't do and all the things I think. I sit and I listen to them. And occasionally I'll say things or ask questions, but I'm trying to help them just be there to listen to them, but also to help them kind of regain that power and control back. Now, back to your question, there's many people that don't come to the realization that what happened to them was wrong, or they really struggle with the self-blame that they feel. Because in my experience, many people are so hot on themselves where they'll say, I shouldn't have been in the room with him. I shouldn't have gone there that night. If I didn't do this, that wouldn't have happened. If I didn't wear a skirt, this wouldn't have happened. If I didn't, and none of those are ultimately true because it's not what they did. It's what someone else chose to do to them. There are people who do come to a realization when they realize whoever hurt them was ultimately wrong. And I believe that's when a massive life change and a healing can occur. When people really intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, in their whole being understand that they are not at fault for what someone else did to them. But it's very difficult. And so sometimes that process can take years. One of the best things I can do is just continue to listen to them, continue to support them, and to continue to let them know that I'm with them, that I'm with them through this because then sometimes they people just think they're annoying me or frustrating me or they, they're not hitting a certain timeline. It's like, no, 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 it's not about a timeline. I'm with you. What do you need right now in this moment in time? And I try my best to be with them. You talk there about listening and to be able to hear the story that someone is sharing with you. How often do you find out that someone has tried to share that story before to one person, to a couple of people, or, or even to a number of people, and yet no one has believed them? No one has taken the time to hear that story? Too often. And it's usually not just one person. It's many people. I, you know, one woman comes to mind that I'm thinking of that all her, like her friends know of the perpetrator and none of them even want to attempt to understand what happened. They just think, oh, there's no way... He didn't do that. It was just regretted sex. There's no way he didn't rape you. And so that has ruined the friendship of this particular woman and these people. But it's interesting because as human beings, rape or not rape, we sometimes have trouble opening up to people in general for fear of not being treated well or not being understood. Or I deal with this with kids, with, with teenagers and, and younger adults and even older adults that they don't feel comfortable opening up about whatever they're either feeling, thinking, sometimes due to our own judgments or our condemnation or just the way we respond. So that's why it's really important to try to find someone in this world who really will listen to you, really attempt to understand it and try to, to help you through it to the best of their abilities. I'm sure that there are serial abusers who know very well how to act in the general population so that they look like, well, they're a great guy and no one suspects them. How much does that play into the, uh, I guess, the willingness of people to come forward knowing that I know how this person presents in public and no one's going to believe me? Yeah, I think that plays a big role in why people don't come forward. I think there are, there are many intelligent criminals and there are many 
people that commit crimes, not in society, but in their own homes. Again, it's a very hidden crime. It's a secret crime in many ways. If you punch someone in the face and you see they have a broken, uh, a bruised eye, you see the eye. But if you uh, sexually assault someone, very rarely is there the evidence to prove that. So you have these people. Now, there are there is evidence, of course, in, in plenty of cases, but there's many times there are not. So it's even if someone wanted to pursue criminal charges, it's very difficult given a lack of evidence if that is true in that particular case. So I think it is very difficult for people to come forward. It's very difficult for people to talk about. It's extremely difficult to prosecute if there's no evidence. And it's really tough to talk, to bring us up about someone that you know, if they are loved in the community, if they are in many sadly, and sadly in some instances, worshipped in the community. And it's really tough for kids, for, for young children to speak up about it is incredibly tough. So all the more reason I think we need to have a loving and welcoming and compassionate environment in our homes, in our schools, wherever we may be, that in case someone is suffering with something, that hopefully they feel comfortable sharing it with us. You've mentioned that one of the hardest things for you is to face children who have suffered sexual abuse. How can we actually prepare our children? How can we tell them that it's all right that if something happens that they talk to us without us going so overboard that we actually bring them into fear? You ask a lot of great questions. I think it's tough and maybe it depends on age too. So when we're talking about high school students or middle school students versus like five-year-olds, maybe the things we say might be a little different, but I think especially when they hit a certain age or, or an, and I don't know maybe what that age is, but that we do talk to them and we try to let them know that no one, there's healthy touch and unhealthy touch. It's okay to touch someone you're playing a tag game or whatever it is. It's unhealthy touch. There are other ways of unhealthy touch. So to teach them about that, to teach our kids about that, to be real with our youth to tell them the truth about what sexual assault really is, but not even to just tell them to listen to them because our kids, some of our kids have already experienced it or they know of someone who has experienced it or they sadly will experience it in the future to let them know that this is not okay. It's never their fault. And we're teaching people also to not do this to our boys and girls, to our men and women, to all people, to not force yourself upon someone, to not coerce them into anything, to not assault anyone, to not rape anyone, to understand what consent really means in all of its ways. These are conversations we need to have and we need to be real with our kids. And sometimes that's a really tough conversation. I think a lot of parents of schools maybe shy away from it. They act like the kids are too young to have that conversation. I, I don't think so. I think they need to have a conversation. In fact, I find that many kids want to have that conversation, maybe in a classroom, maybe not one-on-one, -on -one, or maybe not in a classroom, but they want to hear about it. I have found in my experience, teenagers and kids really respect when you are honest with them. You talked about the start of that healing journey of being able to sit and listen to someone's story, to hear what they have faced, to assure them that they will heal at their own time. There are no markers that they have to hit. What does healing look like long term? Tell me some of the stories of people that you've walked alongside that have come out on the other side and have experienced true healing. Yeah, I believe healing does look different for people. And, and there are some people, people in my book, in my book, it's about 
people who have been raped and sexually assaulted and how it affected them and where they've gone. And that's taken years for the, for many people. One example is just even a guy in my book, a friend of mine, this man named Jim, who was sexually abused as a kid. He was quiet for years and it affected him in many different ways. But here he is now as an older man. He's married. He has kids. He has speaking engagements where he's talking to people. He's talking to kids. You know, he's listening to them. He shares a story and he lets people ask them whatever they want. And here he is impacting lives every time he speaks. Now, was he doing that 20 years ago? No, but he does it now. And there are many stories like that. And it's not just people that go out and share their story and they become advocates. There, In fact, many people don't do that. Another form of healing is for some people being able to even talk about it, to even be, be able to write about it in an email or in poetry, little by little, if they start to feel a little more confident, they feel a little more confident maybe going out on a date or doing better in school or just having it not control and cripple their lives is vitally important. And I see that in people. I see people grow. I see people heal. I see people live functional, healthy lives, again, with relationships or even as individuals. But I also see people really suffer and that this does control and cripple many people and that they haven't come out of it. So there's a whole range of reactions and pieces on these healing journeys. Many people do take those steps to go forward in the healing journey. And many people block it out, don't talk about it, don't deal with it, but it's still there in them. I imagine that there are a number of people that are affected by any single assault or or multiple assaults that that happen to a person, such as other people that are involved in relationships with them where they don't quite understand why they react to certain things. Is there a way that we can start to bring healing to people that surround that person as well? You're right. This is not something that just affects people who are assaulted. This affects significant others, family members and friends as well. And when you asked the question, I immediately thought of, I was at a male conference once for all male rape survivors. Their wives, some of these women were bawling, gushing, crying because maybe they just learned about this in their husbands. Maybe they've been married for 20 years and never knew that their husbands were sexually abused as children. I don't know. But the pain that those women had was something it's pierced in my in my mind and my soul. Yes, we need to also be there for our significant others. And and that's the beauty of rape crisis counselors and hotlines and, and resources out there in the world that significant others can go to as well, because of course they're affected by this. How could they not be? And then of course we look at the other people that are involved in these assaults and and that is the perpetrators. How do we bring healing to them? when everything within us just acts with with anger, with revolt, how do we actually bring healing for them? I think people who commit these crimes and other crimes need to stop and change, to not do it, to admit their wrongs, as we all should do in our lives when we commit wrong, and to seek forgiveness and to not do these things again to the best of our abilities. Now, why do people commit the crime? And there's different reasons. And and why, what are these people suffering with, right? Yes, we know that there are plenty of perpetrators who have been sexually abused themselves. There are also many 
just millions of people who are sexually abused that do not commit these crimes, that they do not continue the cycle. So how do we help them heal? I think if, if anyone chose true forgiveness and truly sought out help to change, that we should be there to help them, whether it's in counseling, whether that's in religious life, wherever that may be. But that's a choice they have to make. Have there been times when you have encountered those perpetrators and, and how do you deal with that? I don't encounter them often, or at least in my day-to-day life that I'm aware of. I have encountered some people that they were interesting to say the least, and they were not showing any signs of contrition, any signs of remorse, but they also didn't admit their crimes. It was more like a feeling I had. So in my experience, it's not something I see often, and it's not something I see often from my maybe studies or things I've seen in the world where people are seeking to go forward. If, if my understanding is correct, and I could be wrong, I think this is one of, if not the least changeable crimes, meaning there's so many perpetrators that do commit these crimes, they commit them more than once. Now, it doesn't mean they can't change, but there are so many that keep doing it. I also believe that if they are committing these crimes and are, and are actually uh, caught and found guilty, they, sh- they should be absolutely be imprisoned. And so when people do commit violent offenses and are let out, maybe in a couple of years, they're putting very dangerous people back on the streets. What would you say then to someone who's listening at the moment, who has been through some sort of trauma in this way, and yet hasn't really had the courage to step forward to this point? What encouragement can you give them at this moment? I would say it's okay that you haven't come forward. I do not know your experiences. It's all right that you haven't spoken maybe to police or to councils, but I would ask you to listen and understand that there are people out there that truly will be with you and spend time with you and listen to you and believe you and not judge you or shame you and will do their best to help with whatever it is that is afflicting you. And whatever it is that you've experienced is not unspeakable. It can be talked about. It can be dealt with. You can grow. You can find healing through this. And this does not have to ruin your life. It doesn't mean it's easy. And I would also say that if you do choose to take that step and talk to someone, and if someone doesn't treat you well, to have that not let you stay silent for more years, but really to hopefully find someone else. So if you do get treated poorly, to find someone else who will treat you the way you need to be treated. There's nothing in this earth, on this earth, that is unspeakable, that we can't talk about and we can't work through. You have talked through these sorts of issues with so many people who have been through such unspeakable violence and assaults. And yet, of course, you can't reach to everyone. And I guess part of you being able to reach more people is writing your book to the survivors. Tell me a little about that book. Part of the beauty of the book is to hopefully reach people in parts of the world I would never see. So it's a combination of my journey as a rape crisis consult with true stories of women, men, and one transgendered man who have been raped and sexually assaulted. You know, I talk about how I got into the work, why I got into it, different experiences with these stories. So there's written poetry, there's written stories and interviews with these people. And it's all raw, it's all real. 
it just showed again what happened to them, how it affected them, but how they've come out of it and and different things that worked for them and maybe different things that might work for you or someone else. But it's not just about rape and sexual assault too. There's other issues of life in there and messages of of spirituality. And and I believe it is a, a universal book. And I hope it's helpful for significant others as well as, as people who've experienced this and just people that don't maybe know someone, but hopefully to educate ourselves on some of this. And it's one book that doesn't speak to the whole world, of course, for all the assaults that occur, but it is something. It's hopefully something positive in this world. And I would tell people to not pick it up if it really is that difficult for them. So they have the choice, of course, you know, that they know it's out there, or if they do pick it up and they start reading it, and then if it becomes too much for them to put it down. So to, to go at it, to read it at your own pace, if you choose, but know that there's a lot more light than darkness in it, because none of the stories keep you low. It could be triggering, it can be very difficult to read, but they all bring you out of it, as hopefully I do through my writing as well, to show that there really is hope and healing after this. If people are wanting to get hold of the book or even to contact you, where's the best place for them to find you? They can find To The Survivors on Amazon.com. It should be in most online retailers. And if they wanted to email me directly, they could do so through my website, robertutaro.com. Robert, we've talked about some very difficult things today, but I want to thank you for the work that you do, for the way that you sit alongside people to, to hear their stories. And I just want to thank you for sharing some of that here today on Bleeding Daylight. I thank you deeply for having me. God bless you, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.